You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week six, covering Matthew 14 through 17, verse 13. Welcome back to another week of WBF. Such a joy to be gathered around the word. So as usual, we have a lot to cover tonight, so we're just going to jump in. Um, It would be helpful to have the text open in front of you tonight. We're just going to cruise right through it. So our passage today, Matthew 14, opens with the third and final act of John the Baptist's story. So if you'll recall, part one was his ministry in the wilderness, preaching the message of repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River. The second act uh, was last week, Lynn's covered that, that found John in jail. And it seemed that he had some questions about Jesus' identity, perhaps wrestling with his expectations of the Messiah. And then today, part three, we have his cruel and unjust death. So we're going to start with verses one and two here. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. Did you think you missed John the Baptist's death? When I was first reading this, I'm like, wait a minute, I think I missed something. This threw me for a loop. But as we said in the workbook, then verses 3 through 12 are a flashback of what happened to John. And remember, this is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great who was in power when Jesus was born. So as Jesus gains notoriety, he becomes harder to ignore. I mean, there are like thousands of people following him. And just as there would be today, these large movements of people are just kind of unsettling to the authorities. It's like, is this a threat to society? Is this a threat to the political powers? But regardless of what Herod was thinking, Jesus had his attention. And so his logic drives him to believe that this is John the Baptist come back from the dead, which to me just is a little window into some of the guilt that he may still have been carrying. The cross-reference in Mark 6 gives us more details of this story. Did you read that? So in true fashion to his ministry, John is calling out the sin that Herod is living in, because he had taken his brother's wife, Herodias. And Mark tells us that Herodias harbored a grudge against John and wanted him dead. But Herod feared John and considered him a righteous and a holy man, which is kind of interesting. He's a very different personality than his father. So uh, Herod threw John in prison to shut him up instead of killing him. But his plan to spare John's life goes south one night. So at this party, Herodias sends her young daughter out to be the entertainment for these drunken men, and then uses her daughter's reward to finally get that opportunity to demand John's death. And so Herod doesn't want to look like a fool in front of his guest, and so he follows through on that rash vow and has John executed. And just like many of the prophets that went before him, and the savior who's gonna come after him, the life of this righteous man is cut short by the wicked. There's a lot that could be said here about the seeming triumph of the kingdom of darkness. You should feel that injustice. But I also think of the words of Jesus, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God did not rescue his servant, John, 
from the hands of the sinners. But though he forfeited his life, you can be sure he gained his soul. So continuing on in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So this is one of several times we'll see Jesus withdrawing from the crowds for safety and or solitude. And what I mean by safety is that, as I just said, there's this mounting attention from the authorities. And he knows his time has not yet come, so it's actually better to just pull back and avoid that direct confrontation with Herod. But then notice his response to the people when they follow and invade his solitude. He doesn't say, leave me alone, I just need a minute. (laughs) But instead he moves toward them in compassion and he meets their needs. And presumably he'd been at this for hours, healing them, ministering to them, when the disciples come to him and they're concerned about how to feed the crowds. And you know the story, at Jesus' request, they bring him what they have, five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus takes this food and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it. And 5,000 men plus women and children are fed with this miraculous provision from his hands. And what I love about this miracle is that he's not just randomly displaying his power, but that there's this parallelism, which Jackie had in her prayer, to the manna in the wilderness, God's miraculous provision of bread for his people, and then also looking forward to Jesus providing himself as the bread of life. John 6 lays all that out for us. So look again at verses 19 and 20, those verbs, um, just with a gospel lens. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. In other words, not to work for their food. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The manna was sufficient for each day, but the bread of life is abundant provision. Grace upon grace upon grace. After everyone had eaten their fill, then Jesus dismisses the crowds, send the disciples across the lake ahead of him, And again, seeking solitude, this time the text tells us he went up on the mountain to pray. Do you find it kind of weird that the Son of God prays to the Father? Seems like such a human thing to do. But I think that's exactly the point. Jesus did not set aside his divinity when he left heaven. But he chose to live within human limits 
And so he shows us what it looks like to live dependent on the Father. And that evening, a storm comes up and is buffeting their ship. And what stood out to me as I reread this story is that Jesus waits until the fourth watch of the night to go out to them. Did you catch that? That would be between 3 and 6 a.m. And for some reason, I find this oddly comforting. Like Jesus knew what was going on, but he didn't immediately go rescue them. What he was going to reveal to them, it was more beneficial that he would wait and that they would fight the storm for several hours. And I'll just let that application hit where it does. The disciples are understandably terrified then when they see this figure walking on the water towards them. And Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Some scholars think this may actually be an allusion to the personal name of God, I am, from Exodus 3. And Peter, in characteristic impulsiveness, jumps out of the boat and starts walking on the water to Jesus. But you know how this goes. He takes his eyes off the Lord, begins to doubt, and he sinks. But Jesus immediately reaches out and takes hold of him. And there's really no way to know what Jesus' tone is here, but it just seems to me to be one more of compassion and not harshness. Like, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? I really do believe Jesus' heart toward us is gentle, even in our doubts, as Lynn said last week. Even his own disciples display such an imperfect faith, yet he continues to meet them where they're at. He wants them, he wants us to increasingly trust him with all that we are. And as the storm around them calms, what is their response? It's worship. Truly, you are the son of God. This miraculous display of his authority over creation then prompts their confession of his deity. And his fame proceeds him then to the other side of the lake. No sooner gets out of the boat that again, all the crowds are coming to him, wanting to be healed, wanting to just touch the fringe of his garment, the text says. And on to verse, or chapter 15. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, this is a serious rebuke, okay? But honestly, when I read this, I'm like, no one tell my 10-year-old son that Jesus said he doesn't have to wash his hands. <laughs> because he'd be more than happy to oblige. <laughs> okay, but what is actually going on here? So hopefully you thought through the difference between tradition and law a bit in your homework, and I think it is helpful to consider the source. So the Pharisees are their religious authorities, but they are the keepers of both the law and these traditions, okay? And obviously the law is from God. It's the ultimate authority. But the Pharisees were notorious for adding a bunch of extra regulations and traditions on top of this, of how to apply the law. And then they would enforce them with the same level of authority if they, if they were on plane with one another. And then additionally, their spiritual blindness had caused them to miss the heart. We talked about this in Sermon on the Mount. Remember, when Jesus calls them hypocrites, and then he quotes this passage from Isaiah, it's because their inner lives do not match their outer lives. 
In verse 10, Jesus says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So if you have any familiarity with Leviticus and Numbers, you know that the law had trained every devout Jew to think about just about everything in terms of cleanness and uncleanness, right? What they eat, what they wear, what they touch, everything. And uncleanness doesn't automatically equal sinful, but it does mean ceremonially defiled. They're unqualified um, to participate in the life and worship of God's holy people. These purity laws had taught them to revere the holiness of God, which is a really good thing. But it was also pointing them to a greater reality that their outer cleanliness, all of these things they were doing in practice, were meant to be representative of their inner state before God. That was always his intent of these laws. So in verse 19, where does Jesus say our sin ultimately comes from? It's the heart, it's the heart, the inner person. The heart means the center of one's will and affections. The center of one's will and affections. This is where our behavior, good or bad, always originates. And so do you understand then why Ezekiel prophesied And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And Jeremiah, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus then travels to the district of Tyre and Sidon, which is a region populated by Gentiles, not Jews. So that's important context we wanna keep in mind for this section. So we see a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, addressing Jesus as the son of David, which is a very Jewish messianic title. And she pleads with him three times to deliver her daughter from demon possession. And at first, Jesus denies her request. It seems very uncharacteristic of him, right? But did you read those cross-references? So the plan of God, his plan of redemption has been this unfolding process. And at this point in history, where we're at in Matthew, salvation is being offered first to the Jews. These are his chosen people. These are those whom he has covenanted himself to. But we also know from the prophets, they foretold this, that many of Jesus' own people would reject him and then this salvation would be offered to every tribe and nation. That's what we mean by Gentile. So his comment to her here is simply because of where we're at in the story. But Jesus is not bound by that, right? You see, he commends her faith, heals her daughter instantly. And we have all kinds of stories like this just sprinkled throughout the Old Testament and the Gospels that indicate that God's heart has always been for the whole world. And next we have a very similar account to chapter 14. We have Jesus ascending a mountain and healing all who were brought to him. The result of these healings is that the people glorified the God of Israel in verse 31. And then again, we have a parallel account of a miraculous feeding. We have the same compassionate savior, the disciples still imperfect faith, 
And then the same progression, the people sit and receive the broken and multiplied bread that satisfies. So why such similar accounts? Why do we have to go through all this again? Well, do you remember where we are? We're in Gentile territory. This is a gospel foreshadowing, okay? It's going to be grace upon grace for all who will believe. And chapter 16 finds us back in Jewish territory with a very different reception. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are now teaming up against Jesus. They're not normally teammates. And they're trying to pin him to the wall by asking for a sign. Because it turns out it's super hard to condemn the guy who's healing people and teaching in parables, okay? So in verse four, he says to them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. This is the second time we've heard of the sign of Jonah. The last time was in chapter 12. And we learned there, ultimately, this is going to be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like a greater fulfillment to Jonah's story. If the people repented at the coming of Jonah, then how much more so should those who encounter the Messiah? In verse six, Jesus says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And do you see again, the disciples don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> this is again showing us that need for the spirit to illuminate truth. But then Jesus tells them plainly like, okay guys, the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, if you remember, he just compared the kingdom of heaven to leaven in dough, just not long ago. And what we see here is the same effect, but like the negative contrast, just a little bit of false teaching gets in, begins to grow and spread, and it's going to affect the whole batch. Jesus then says to his disciples in verse 13, who do people say that the son of man is? And they reply, as many would today, well, he's a great prophet. And then he asks them directly, but who do you say that I am? And this, sisters, is the question that every human being must answer for themselves. Who do you say that I am? It brings this uh, C.S. Lewis quote to mind. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. And Peter answers, as I pray we all would, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are those to whom the father has revealed the truth of Jesus Christ. And verses 18 and 19 that follow this confession are a little difficult to interpret. Did you find that to be the case as well? You should know these verses are 
hot buttons in the church, uh, past and present. So I'm actually gonna take a little time here to unpack them. So the Roman Catholics interpret these verses as Jesus instating Peter as the first Pope. So that he is giving him here what they call papal authority. And then every Pope since then has just passed this down, okay? So that's why they have this office of Pope and where it came from. And what papal authority means is that the teachings of the Pope are authoritative and infallible. So essentially like on the same level as the word of God. Now, we know from scripture, this cannot be an accurate interpretation, right? Peter was a vital leader in the early church. We're gonna get to that in a minute. But he was still just a man. Jesus is not endowing him with some sort of special knowledge in and of himself. And additionally, modern day here, um, hyper charismatic movements like the word of faith, the prosperity gospel, the NAR, they love to use verse 19 out of context. This is the keys of the kingdom of heaven verse. So whether you're familiar with these movements or not, I'm simply reminding you, don't believe everything you hear, <laughs> no matter how convincing the source, okay? And this is, this is myself included. Everything you hear from this stage, you should be able to test by the word of God through the spirit of God. If there is something that we do not know for sure, we will tell you, we'll be transparent, okay? False teachers depend on you not knowing your Bibles. And so the best defense you have against deception is to be well acquainted with the truth. Okay, I'm gonna stop there or we're gonna be down a rabbit trail. Okay, so let me work through this as clearly as possible. Jesus gives Simon the name Peter, which means rock or stone. And then there's this little play on words when he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. The Greek words are just slightly different. So there are three generally accepted interpretations among Protestants or non-Catholics as to who or what this rock is. The first is Peter. The second one is a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, like Peter just demonstrated. The third is Christ, who he is and what he has revealed. So do you guys wanna vote? I'm just kidding, we do not, it's not how we interpret scripture, guys. Um, okay, so I don't know about you, but I just want it to be number three because that's just like slam dunk, right? Neat and tidy, I, it seems conducive with the rest of scripture, I get the imagery, but that's actually the minority opinion among scholars and commentators. And so this is a great example of why we need to just let the text stand for itself and do our best to rightly interpret it without imposing our own assumptions on it. So the majority of scholars actually believe it to be number one, that the rock is Peter, not the Pope, just Peter, okay? And let me explain briefly how this could be possible. So Ephesians 2, 19 and 22, which you also looked at in your homework, tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And then the apostles and the prophets are that foundational layer of stone, okay? That's the, just, they came first. <laughs> and God established his church through them, um, the gospel went forth through them, he wrote scripture through them. So they're that foundational layer. And then all the rest of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ since then are the living stones built up together into a dwelling place for God. So Peter, as he's already kind of shown his true colors, is a leader among the disciples. And he's also going to be a really critical leader among the apostles when the church of Christ goes forth. 
So he is the first to preach the gospel to the Jews. This is at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. He's the first to include Samaritans in the church. And he's the first to include Gentiles in the church. These are really big deals. So there is legitimacy for this interpretation. In my mind, those who hold to option number two are just kind of like the peacemakers. They don't really want to pick a side. So anyway, um, whenever we're faced with all that we don't know, we need to come back and ask ourselves, okay, but what do we know? What do we know for certain? And first and foremost, it's that Jesus Christ, guys, is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the cornerstone, the head of the church, full stop. We know who he is and what his role is. And Peter is an imperfect man, but my goodness, did God use him in mighty ways to build and grow his church. That's undeniable. And then don't forget the rest of the verse. Who will build the church? It's Christ. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell, death itself, will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God has eternal staying power. No matter what the church faces in this age, it will be victorious in the next because of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished. And in verse 19, Jesus says he will give the keys of the kingdom to Peter, again, kind of as a representative of the apostles. This simply means the knowledge of the gospel, the teachings of Christ. This is an authoritative message. This is the authoritative message that people need to hear in order to be loosed of their spiritual bondage. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who reject it remain bound. And the verb tenses in the Greek here indicate that God is working through the apostles to accomplish what he has already ordained. So he is entrusting this authority to his apostles and eventually to the church as a whole. So may we steward this responsibility well. We have the gospel message. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, at this point in the narrative, Jesus concludes his Galilean ministry, and we're going to see a shift. He's turning his face toward Jerusalem and beginning that journey to face the cross. And lest you be tempted to think too highly of Peter, he goes on here to rebuke Jesus. We don't know exactly what he said, but Jesus' response is pretty strong. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Guys, same Peter who just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. Same Peter, Jesus just said, I'm gonna build, you're the rock, I'm gonna build my church. He uses imperfect disciples through the power of his spirit to accomplish his will on the earth. Unless you be quick to condemn Peter, remember, this is still not what the disciples are expecting. This is the first time Jesus explicitly declares his death coming, Um, but they're still not expecting this. A king who dies? Like, how does that accomplish God's righteous rule on the earth? 
but we know that Jesus will be faithful to the mission that he came for. His, Peter's rebuke here is kind of reminiscent of that temptation in the wilderness where the devil was tempting him to grasp for the crown without the cross. Like, let's just avoid that. Can we just, we'll just go this way, do things my way? But Jesus will never step outside the will of God and he will be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And with a twist of uh, prophetic irony here, Jesus tells his disciples, verse 24 and 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So two things here. The first is count the cost. Jesus is not sliding a get out of jail free card like across the table to you. He's calling you to come and die. Die to your sinful nature. Die to your corrupted desires. Die to anything that contaminates body and spirit to be willing to leave it behind. And if necessary, to literally give up your life. His call is for wholehearted allegiance. And so I ask you, are you in? And the second is consider the gain. I know this is hard for us to imagine in our context, but even if you are killed for your allegiance to King Jesus, your soul is eternally secure in him. And anything you lose on this earth is worth nothing compared to the riches of Christ. And this section concludes with this strange comment in verse 28. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now there's been a lot of speculation as to what Jesus means here, because I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think second coming. But I would draw your attention to verse 24. So he's talking to his disciples. So at face value, this would be something that happens before the end of their lives. So the two most plausible interpretations uh, for this are that he's either referring to his transfiguration, because that's being a foretaste of his glory, okay? Or to after his resurrection, when he's raised in a glorified state, he's the victor over sin and death, and he is going to ascend to the Father and take his place back at the right hand. So I'll let you look into that further if you're still curious. Our passage concludes with Jesus again ascending a mountain, following that pattern of divine revelation, and this time he's bringing some of his closest companions along. So in verse two, it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. To be transfigured means to change outer form in keeping with an inner reality. To change outer form in keeping with an inner reality. I love that definition. So Jesus is pulling back the curtain, so to speak, of his glorious identity as the son of God. And Matthew describes his appearance as that of the blazing sun, which just brings to mind all of those Old Testament references of when the people would see God's Shekinah glory made visible. And Moses and Elijah then appear with him. 
how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? I don't know, all the questions, right? But this is pointing to Christ being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He has come to fulfill, remember, not to abolish. In the parallel account of Luke 9, it says that Moses and Elijah also appeared in glory and they spoke with him of his departure. And that Greek word there is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Finally, this Messiah had arrived. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of every promise that God had made. He's the fulfillment of all of redemptive history up until this point. And he has come for that true and better exodus to deliver God's people up and out of the bondage of sin. So Peter then stammers about setting up a memorial to honor them. And as he's still speaking, then a bright cloud envelops them and they hear the same words that the father spoke at the Jordan River. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And now we have that addition of, and listen to him. In Deuteronomy 18, God promised a new prophet like Moses. And he says, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This son of man is the word made flesh and every single person's eternity depends on their response to him. And as with every human encounter of God's glorious presence, the disciples just fall out face down in terror. But this mountaintop experience is different than Mount Sinai. If you remember, Moses set limits around the mountain. For if anyone was even to touch the mountain, they would be struck dead. But on this mountain, Jesus, God himself, reaches out and touches them. And he says, rise and have no fear. The holy God of Mount Sinai has made himself low, coming to touch and be touched. He has come meek and lowly to deny himself and to take up his cross. This king did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Christ, we just pause again in all of all that you've done for us, for who you are. We acknowledge you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Father, thank you for calling us to yourself, for making this way of redemption that we could be reconciled to you, for giving us your spirit, for writing that law on our hearts that we can have a true and better righteousness from the inside out that would actually be changed to resemble you. So Father, we also just acknowledge, uh, like the disciples, we too struggle sometimes with this imperfect faith, with the doubts, the worries, the struggles of this life. Oh, but Christ, I thank you that you are so gentle. You are merciful towards us. You understand us in our weakness and you just long for us to come, come back to you time and time again. And so we just honor you for who you are. Would you do your work in our hearts as we continue to study your word and may it change us 
May we come to see you rightly and may we not stay the same. Work in us and through us according to your will. And this is all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.